Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, April 8th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me at today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So it's been... Uh, over almost two weeks since the last time we were all in a room together, uh, and by a room I mean virtual room on Skype, and uh, you know Ben and I have been away at CinemaCon watching stuff. We actually talked a bit about what we saw in terms of movies and shows on the last episode of the podcast, so we will not be discussing those things yet again here. Uh, but let's jump into it and talk about what we've been up to in uh, the time since the last time we talked to you guys. Um, I I went to WonderCon in Anaheim, which is is a fun time, and visited Disneyland and uh, was celebrating a friend's birthday, my friend Nate's birthday, who may or may not be listening to this. Uh, and because of that, I had a big, big old cheat day. And I felt so horrible about it after eating everything. It just it turns out, Jacob. If you eat horrible food, uh, it doesn't make you happy. <laughs> well, my first uh, – I'm not calling them cheat days. I'm calling them days off or reward days is reward this weekend. Day, yeah. for, um, I'm taking this weekend off for my wife's birthday. Uh, but then it's, once again, on the dot until August. So I'm hoping that I will – any bad feelings I have will get worked out this weekend as I eat bad crap and I can get right back to it on Monday. Yeah. The one thing I did want to plug, and I, I should plug this in the food section, but I'll say it now because I'm, I'm talking about Disney, is I went to downtown Disney and I ate at this food truck called Mad Dumpling Truck. And they had like these crazy dumplings. Like they had um, like a fried chicken dumpling. I don't know. They, that that was actually worth it. But everything, everything else, not so much. Uh, I also covered the Avengers Endgame Junket, which is kind of weird because they did uh, the junket for this movie. They did not screen the film. We saw... A total of about six minutes, and we were asking, you know, going in and asking questions of, you know, I, I had an interview with the Russo brothers, who did not want to talk about any plot points whatsoever. So, so that was fun. 
<laughs> you will read that on the site uh, this week or next. Um, but I, I, I did ask them questions that I knew that they would answer. So we got we got some interesting things. So look forward to that. Um, Brad, what have you been up to? Uh, last week, I finally uh, bit the bullet and dug into my wallet and bought a PlayStation 4. It's been a long time coming because uh, I've been wanting to play that kick-ass spider game for a, a spider spider game spider-man game for a while <laughs> um and there was a deal last week where walmart brought back the red dead redemption 2 bundle at a discounted price where the game was basically free and so i took that as a sign of like well this needs to happen now so now i have a playstation 4 with two of the best games made for the system so far and how are uh, the games brad how are they well i would love to tell you except life is cruel and I haven't had time to actually sit down and play them yet because I've been trying to get stuff in order uh, at my house because my girlfriend is coming back for a visit um, next week. But since I have to cover Star Wars Celebration for Slash Film this coming week, I won't have uh, this coming weekend to get stuff in order for her arrival. So I kind of had to do that this past weekend instead. So I'm hoping to have some time maybe before Star Wars Celebration to dig into Spider-Man. That's going to be my first priority since I've been so excited to play it. Um, but otherwise I'll probably have to wait to really get into it until after Star Wars Celebration. Yeah. Poor Brad, you have to go to Star Wars Celebration. Oh, it's, poor, it's, poor, this poor Brad. So hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and look forward to coverage from Star Wars Celebration starting later this week. When, did, when does it kick off? Yeah, Star Wars Celebration starts Thursday, so hopefully we'll have some stuff from the show floor um, when that opens up that, that evening. We'll see what they have out there, maybe some early Star Wars Episode Nine uh, teaser kind of stuff. And then the, the big stuff hap- is happening on Friday with the Star Wars Episode Nine panel. So this this is going to be a big week for Star Wars fans. Yeah. H.J., what have you been up to? Like, judging by your Instagram stories, it seems like a lot. I know. I've been oh, unusually busy this past week. Um People keep inviting me to things, and it's kind of annoying. Uh, <laughs> you're you're popular, HD. No, not really. But you know, I got to go to some stuff this past uh, week and a half. I um, saw, went to a pet cemetery advanced screening that was being held by the Brooklyn Horror Festival, where they brought out Church the Cat, or at least one of many of the Church the Cats, and he was adorable, and he was wearing a tie, and uh, at one point as he was walking by uh, back towards his little cage thing, um, he sniffs my purse, and he was really cute. So <laughs> I'll talk a little bit later about what I thought about Pet Cemetery, but that was really fun because they brought out the cast, um, and uh, it was actually a, not a bad Q&A either as opposed to some other ones I've been to in the past. So it was a, it was a fun screening. It was um, at the Nighthawk Theater in uh, – Brooklyn. There's two of them. I think I went. I went to the Prospect Park one, which was a really cool uh, theater where they, uh, like the Alamo, serve you food at your seat. Yeah. Wait, wait. Um, did you and, actually get to meet Church the Cat? No, he was just, or he, yeah, he was just sitting at the front with the uh, the other cast members or other like. Next oh, to in the VIP se- section, the being VIP a diva. Section. Yeah, he's like a little diva. He's was there for some photo ops and that was it he didn't get to you know we didn't get to a uh, meet and greet or anything he was just there but he was cute yeah it's funny on the the set of captain marvel not the one that we went to but there was a uh another set visit with some female journalists they actually get got to hold goose the cat and i i am regretting my my 
decision of not not being a female. Oh, my my decision, <laughs> not my being my a parent, female. yeah, and not being invited to that set visit because that would have been cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, actually, the funny thing is, I'm allergic to cats, but I would have <laughs> held church the cat regardless of that. <laughs> what else have you been up to? Um, I also attended the Missing Link uh, New York premiere, which was held at the Regal Battery Park. Uh, Hugh Jackman, Zoe Saldana, um, Zach Galifianakis, and the director Chris Butler was there. And it was really cool. I didn't really attend for the red carpet screening, uh, red carpet premiere, but I walked by and they were there. And there was a really cute um, group of children. I think they invited several children's groups, including uh, Girls Who Code and other organizations. Uh, I think they also did some sort of um, events because all of the kids had like face paint and everything on it. So it was a really sweet um, event that they were doing for that. And um, I also will talk about my reactions to Missing Link later on. Uh, but the premiere was fun. And um, I, I, I will say I enjoyed the film. Um, and lastly, of the other things I've gone to is I went to an Epic High concert. And this is the same day as my, my Missing Link premiere, so I was, it was a very jam-packed Sunday for me. But Epic High is a K-hip-hop uh, trio composed of Tableau, Mythrogen, and DJ Two Cuts. And they're sort of an alternative hip-hop style group. Uh, a lot of their music recently has been sort of more mellow, chill wave music, but they have a lot of really uh, intense um, sort of techno hype hits from earlier in their career. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Oh, it was actually one of my um, favorite concerts I've been to recently, even though I couldn't see anything. <laughs> Uh, because I am a very short person and going to concerts isn't always the best uh, experience for me just because when I go into the pit, it's just <laughs> I'm just behind a lot of people and I'm perfect elbow height too. So oh. yeah, it's, uh, it's not always fun, but this was a really great time. Uh, just because uh, the group, they really know how to work a crowd. Uh, and they're just like, they're so funny. Uh, Tableau, the leader like and lead rapper of the group, is actually Canadian. Um, he's Canadian-Korean. He was born in Canada. So his he was able to just like MC and um, have a really good time just kind of interacting with the crowd and uh, trying out his, his comedy bits, which was hilarious. He spent a lot of time trolling the crowd and everything. But it was so fun. They played a lot of their... Um, they're big um, hype hits, and uh, it's it's always fun going to a K-pop concert because uh, in a lot of the cases you don't really know or can't sing along to the songs unless they're like random English verses. But in the case of a lot of K-hip-hop groups like Epic High, a lot of those English verses are just like fuck, and like they, they use the word <laughs> fuck sprinkled throughout, and it's a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I had a great time. This was at the Terminal Five venue in Manhattan, and uh, I really recommend. Um, Epic High, actually, even if you don't like or don't think you will like K-pop, um, they're a really great um, just band in general. And their music is, uh, especially recently, has been so soothing and um, just uh, very relaxing. I, I was a little disappointed that they didn't play a lot of their slower hits and their more recent hits. But I guess it wouldn't really go jibe with the with the more intense sort of crowd Um audience that, that that was going on who were all very well dressed by the way <laughs> I was I was trying to step up my game and I wore like some something that I thought would be suitable for this a k-pop concert and everyone else was just way more fashionable than me uh, but yeah it was a lot of fun um, and uh, yeah I had a great time 
You, you know how I know I'm getting old is because I didn't know half the words you were saying when you were describing this band early in, early in your description. Um, K-pop was probably one of the only terms I, I recognized. Uh, Jacob, uh, what have you been up to? Uh, uh, last water cooler, I believe I talked about uh, building a, a small home gym. Uh, and I've been keeping up with that. I've been exercising at first every other day. Now I'm on two days on, uh, one day off. And I've, I've realized the dark secret to maintaining a relatively strict uh, exercise regimen, which is I recall a conversation on a video game podcast from years ago where two game critics discussed that when you really, when you really boil it all down, all video games is, and the appeal of all games in general, is the joy of watching numbers get bigger and how ultimately uh, take away graphics, take away gameplay, take away story and character and ultimately it boils down to how satisfying is it to watch the numbers get bigger yeah. uh and so i bought a you, whiteboard. you want to level up right yeah so i bought a whiteboard and i have all my information my cardio information my, my weightlifting information all kept on track with on a whiteboard with little notations as, as to what numbers went up what numbers went down what numbers are stabilized so every time i walk through my garage i see my current high score and I want the numbers to get bigger. So I've tricked my, my, my mind into transforming exercise into a video game. And the numbers must get bigger, Peter. They must. They must. Okay. Uh, you know, in addition to that, you've also been reading some stuff? Yeah. I know a few months ago I talked about wanting to get on the track of reading a book a week. And I've been failing at that. It's been a very, very busy few weeks for me. Uh, but I'm finally started reading uh, Sandman Slim by Richard Cadry. And I picked this up because uh, Chad Chalesky, who... Uh, directed John Wick's parts one, two, and three, uh, bought the film rights to this last year. So I thought, oh, if the John Wick guy wants to make it, I should check this out. And it's, a so far, a very cool, very pulpy uh, horror action novel about a, a modern-day sorcerer living in Los Angeles whose circle of fellow magicians, uh, for reasons still unexplained in the book, send him to hell uh, as part of a ritual where he arrives in hell, but he's still alive. And the this all happens before the book starts, and the demons and forces of hell essentially toss him into hell's glad, gladiator pits, and he becomes a fighter in the pits for over a decade, barely surviving, and increasingly becoming more and more immune to all kinds of magic, all kinds of monsters. And eventually, he escapes from hell, imbued with all kinds of hellish powers, and starts seeking revenge across Los Angeles. And it's essentially this sort of noir uh, action supernatural story where a guy's literally been to hell and back and looking for the men who sent him there. And so far, it's just hard-boiled dialogue, crazy, like, hard-driven action, tough guy, uh, nonsense in a good way. And I'm really enjoying it. And I can really, I can really, really see it being a really fun movie in sort of the Constantine vein with John Wick-style action. And I keep on picturing Keanu Reeves as, as the main character, even though he's too old for the part. <laughs> yeah, your description of this, I, I keep on I'm like, yeah, that sounds like that would be the perfect project for that guy. So, uh, Ben, I know when I was on the plane with you, you were reading some books. What were you reading? Yeah, the one that I wanted to talk about is called The Mysterious Affair at Styles, And it was published in 1920. It's written by Agatha Christie, the famous uh, mystery novelist. And this is the first novel that she ever wrote. So she wrote it in like during World War One. And it was published, I think, four years after she originally wrote it. And um, it's, it's basically everything that you sort of imagine when when you talk about um, when you, I guess, conjure up imagery of Agatha Christie stories. It takes place 
in this really fancy estate that's sort of isolated from everywhere else. It has uh, a cast of mysterious characters. There's a, there's a, a poisoning, a murder takes place there, and everybody is uh, is sort of like all tied up in who trying to figure out who uh, committed this terrible thing. And this is actually the first novel that introduced her famous uh, inspector detective character, uh, Hercule Poirot, who is a, a Belgian character. He's, uh, what's his name? Um, God, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Kenneth Branagh just played him in uh, a, a recent adaptation of that movie so, or of that book. So you may have seen that in theaters like two years ago. But uh, yeah, this book was pretty good. I mean, it, it, you can sort of tell that it's her first time out of the gate because it's like a little, it, she hasn't quite perfected the formula yet, even though it's certainly there and you can see uh, all of the elements sort of clearly in place. And it's it's a really nice um sort of like a, a guidepost for what to come or what is to come later in her her, uh, her writing career. So I'm, I'm trying to get through as many of her books as possible this year, sort of anticip- in anticipation of Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, which is a, a murder mystery that is sort of inspired by Agatha Christie books. So uh, maybe I'll be talking a little bit more about those if uh, if everything goes well this year. Yes. Okay, let's move into what we've been watching. And let's start off with uh, people who have been watching multiple things. Uh, Jacob and Brad, you both uh, saw Shazam? Yeah, Shazam is really good. <laughs> I think it's uh, definitely the most uh, joyous superhero movie I've seen in a long time. The, one of the very few who to capture the fact that being a superhero it was probably going to be a ton of fun. <laughs> if you can fly and lift things over your head that weigh a thousand pounds. It's just this big goofy blast and i think the target audience for it is younger i think maybe this is the new favorite movie for every single 12 year old out there but i don't have a problem with that i think you know superhero movies deserve to you know be made for all people and 12 year olds deserve to have a movie to call their own and uh this reminded me a lot of the movies i grew up with from the 80s and 90s and not in a way like not in a stranger things type way where it's deliberately aping an old-fashioned style and trying to hit those nostalgic notes but in the, the the blend of adventure and uh, humor and life lessons and just enough scariness to make a kid feel brave. Uh, it, it manages to feel like the things I loved when I was younger without, you know, playing on my nostalgia. It just is. It just is one of those things. And I, I do have a big quibble with it. And it's even, it's in, I'm not even a big quibble. It's just a very specific missed opportunity that I felt compelled to write about. I'll put down the show notes. It's very spoilery. Um, I, I guess without, without spoiling it, it's a movie that really is honest about themes and honest that sometimes life is hard and sometimes you gotta make tough choices and sometimes you have to find love um where you can because it's not gonna be brought to you you know automatically and in a movie that does that that does address that directly i think it cops out in one area about about you know being a little tough uh in some in some ways but i'll like i said that'll be in the show notes but brad uh i know you like this just as much if not more than me right yeah, and I I liked it for a lot of the same reasons. The um, it's it's super fun. First of all, it's just it's very funny. Zachary Levi, this this is seriously the role he was born to play. Uh, he's just so, so great at expressing this, uh, you know, childish wonder to having superpowers and like messing around with them with, uh, Jack Dylan Grazer as uh Freddy, his, his sidekick. Um, and it's just yeah, it, it's so much fun because of that. The it's the this perfect blend of what made big, you know, this classic 1980s comedy uh, mixed with the superhero genre, and it's probably the most fun 
uh, DC Comics movie that there has ever been, even more so than something that's as wild as Aquaman, simply because I think a lot of the humor in Aquaman doesn't work very well. Um, but this is, yeah, this just it's intentionally funny. Um, and I think that it's just, it, it, it mix, mixes with like some inappropriate stuff that you might think is maybe questionable for the kid audience that it seems to be geared towards. But I really like that because like you talked about, it's reminiscent of the movies of the 80s and 90s, which when you go back and look at some of those movies that we grew up on, they were a little bit inappropriate, you know, for for younger kids. Like it had just the right amount of monsters, a little bit of like double entendre kind of sex jokes. You know, there's um, a bit in in the movie, you know, involving a strip club, which is done really, really funnily without being super inappropriate about it. Um, so yeah, there's, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff in here that I, I really enjoyed. And I think that it's, um, yeah, it's just a really fr- fun and fresh direction for the DC extended universe to, uh, to take a superhero movie like this. Yeah. We have an interview with the director, David F. Sandberg, where we talk, cause he, his previous films were the horror films lights out and, uh, Annabelle creation, which makes it like an odd choice for this. Although he uh, was but... able to make a good Annabelle movie. So, oh yeah. Annabelle creation is very good, <laughs> yeah. believe it or not. Um, but it, is, it makes him out an odd choice, but like this movie has like genuinely scary monsters. It's the seven deadly sins who are kept out of the trailers, but they're you know like the the key monsters uh, in in the movie are genuinely scary. And there's some like set pieces where they're wreaking havoc. And in an interview, uh, Sandberg talked about how you know it's important to make kids feel scared because it makes them feel brave. And I, I and I, I think it's really really important in a film like this. Uh, HG, you saw us again though. So anything stand out for you on second thought? No, I'll take a watch. Yeah, I really love this film, and uh, just watching it again kind of solidified that. Uh, like you guys said, Zachary Levi is on the full charm offensive, and um, I did really enjoy the David F. Sandberg like flexing his horror bona fides, not just in the design of the monsters, which looked almost Guillermo del Toro esque in sort of like how baroque they looked, but also in the the scenes that almost are um, a little arch and a little pulpy, like the scene with the in the. Uh, reception, the reception room, the conference room, uh, which was uh, the the closest to horror that we see in this film, and it's it's so fun and yet so just dark in a lot of ways. Uh, I just um, what else? Yeah, I think this is the purest distillation of what uh, is so enjoyable about being a superhero. It really captures that, and I think that it, not since Sam Raimi's Spider Man have we seen a superhero enjoying just being a superhero. Uh, and that was something that I, that really struck with me again the second time where we see him, you know, having fun and kind of abusing that power. And it's just such a, like, almost like cathartic in a way. It's a, it's a way that really con- connects with the audience and like empathizes with that because it, it does put you in that space. And um, yeah, I, I really liked it. I do think that like, I like that there's, is able to balance like the satire moments and the sincerity of it all. And uh, it, it, and a lot of the jokes actually remember make, reminding me of Deadpool in a ways, but in a way that does, wasn't too smug, but in, but like lent to the overall just uh, joyous experience of it. And I will say I really enjoyed um, one part that was like in the third act twist, which I can't talk about, but yeah. there was just like an anime reference, which I loved a lot. And I think I was the only one who was like cheering for it, but it was just even better the second time around. <laughs> I, I, know, I know the one. <laughs> people lost their minds in my screening during that moment, HD. So you're certainly not alone there. <laughs> yeah, mine too, HD. I will say um, on uh, talking about the, the horror side of this movie, um, if you're a parent and you're thinking about taking your kids to see this movie, I would make sure you know your kid's threshold for what scares them 
because uh, there was a one kid who apparently wasn't brave enough for the movie in my screening, where when the monsters first came out in that conference room scene, this kid who had to be maybe five, six years old, as soon as the monsters came out, immediately started crying and oh. said to his dad, why did you bring me to this? <laughs> oh, no. So wow. just make sure you're careful. Like, if you if you know, like, certain things don't scare your kids, like monsters and stuff like that, or they understand that it's not real and they're cool with it, then let them enjoy. But, like, definitely know that these monsters are pretty scary. <laughs> oh, and just real quick, because we've been on Shazam for a while now, but um, Mark Strong, yay or nay? Because I, I really enjoyed Mark Strong playing a very straightforward, very evil dude with a chip on his shoulder with, like, no complications. I, I really, I, really I enjoyed like him. I like Mark Strong, but I wish he was given more character to chew on. Like, all these villain roles, he, he really isn't given a lot, it feels like to me. I do think a good amount of it can't, comes from that opening scene, yeah. but it, but it's still pretty two dimensional. And I on, on one level, like Jacob said, I do like that because he's he's just a flat out bad guy who is pissed out about the hand that he was dealt and wants magic powers. Um, but at the same time, I, I I do kind of want a little bit more from from a villain. I like the simplicity of it because it kind of uh, emphasizes that the villain isn't really the important part of Shazam's arc, or rather of Billy's arc. It's about him kind of coming to terms with the idea that he is a superhero and he has to take on those burdens. Yeah, and he and he's still obsessed with his childhood. He he, he never grew up in a way that Billy is growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it works for me. I was just curious because I, yeah. I, I think that DC's had a villain problem for a while now. It just went the same way Marvel has, and I, I actually really enjoyed how this played out. Yeah, we need to move on to the big film that opened this weekend, uh, Pet Cemetery. I did not get to see this film, although I feel like everywhere I went, people were like, "I saw Pet Cemetery because uh, your your quote or Chris's quote that was all over the marketing, and everybody was disappointed." So, uh, Jacob, you saw it. Was Chris right? Oh, I saw it South by with Chris, and I oh, loved okay. it. But I want to hear from everybody else who saw it. Okay. Uh, do you want to go, HT? You Should go. I go first? Yeah. You go okay. first. Um, I saw it and I liked it. Um, I'm kind of in the middle. I wasn't disappointed per se, but I enjoyed it for what it was. I didn't enjoy it quite as much as Chris and Jacob, I think. I might not be the audience for this just because I don't really have an affiliation for Stephen King. And I can see this being, in particular, a really fun and really uh, special movie for Stephen King's fa- Stephen King fans. But I enjoy this as a straight-up horror film. And um, I like the, the dread that it builds and the, t- the themes of grief that it touched on. It didn't quite get as, like, as deep as I would have wished, wished for it to be, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Also, uh, Chris, you ended up seeing this movie again, and there was some kind of fiasco in the movie theater. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say, uh, I don't, I don't really know what what people want. Like, like <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I not, I'm this... not blaming you, Chris. It's just uh... no. I, 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 I love this movie when I saw that South by Southwest, and I too have heard from a few people who are like, "Oh, I didn't like that." And the the biggest complaint seems to be people really don't like the third act which which changes uh you know both the book and the 1989 film drastically it goes in a completely new direction and i i'm sorry i just don't think that's a valid criticism like you know it doesn't have to be identical to the like if you want that just go watch the 1989 film like i liked that it it did something new and you know so i I went and saw it again over the weekend my wife wanted to see it and a a part of me was nervous because i was like man what if 
what if I was wrong? Because you know, sometimes when you see a movie at a film festival, you get really caught up in the 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 mood in the room because film festival crowds are a lot different than general audience crowds. And usually, film festival crowds they're there to see the movie. They're excited to see the movie. There's a certain energy. So a part of me was like, oh man, what if I just got swept up in that that positive energy and this movie isn't as good as I remember it being? But I actually liked it even more seeing it the second time, maybe because like I, I knew what was coming and I was looking for different things this time. I don't know, but I really think this holds up. I stand by my very positive review. I have a new super long spoiler review up today at slash com, and uh, where I go into detail about why I think all of this works so well. So if you think I'm wrong, people out there go read this, maybe you'll see where I'm coming from. And if you still think I'm wrong, I don't know what to tell you. You're, maybe you're the one who's wrong. You ever think of that? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, uh, what, what happened in the theater, Chris? Yes. So uh, I've, I've already talked several times about how I just hate going to the movies because the, the experience has become an utter nightmare. And uh, I was once again proven right with this, this scenario. So first of all, you know, my wife and I, we went to the earliest show possible. We went to a noon showing because I was hoping you know it would be less crowded and there'd be less people there. And sure enough, we, we sit down. And first of all, this this mother and her, her son come in. And this kid's probably like 10, maybe 13. And I can already tell the minute they sit down, I was like, we're going to have to move. And sure enough, like the trailer start and the trailer for uh, the, the Annabelle sequel comes on, Annabelle 3. And the, the mother goes really out loud like oh no we're not seeing that i was like all right i said turn to my wife and i said we're moving right now because i'm not sitting by this <laughs> loud woman this entire movie so we moved to a different seat we moved like across the theater and the movie's uh, about to start and literally before the credits open uh another woman comes in with a baby and when i say a baby i mean this baby was literally in like a car seat or a baby carrier that she was carrying in and i i started grinding my teeth and my wife you know who is a lot saner than i am was like you know maybe it'll be okay don't don't worry and it was not okay the baby immediately started shrieking like as the movie was starting and like just screaming and shrieking and at that point i said no we're not doing this so we went out we got a refund and we went to a different screening that was baby free and i i don't know what's wrong with people uh, you know talking in theaters you know that's one thing if you i understand it's hard to it's hard for some people to not talk. I don't know why, but it is. But you should really know at this point in the 21st century that just bringing a baby, not just to an R-rated movie, but any movie, is just a really stupid idea. Like, what are you doing? I understand, you know, you can't get a, a babysitter, but you know what? Then you don't go to the movie. It's really that simple. You stay home. I'm sorry. You chose to have the baby. This is your life now. Please don't ruin my time at the movies. <laughs> Oh, Chris, I have a story about your story. Uh, a writer who writes for Slash Film recently had her first baby. Her military husband was uh, recently stationed in Hawaii, so they made the move to Hawaii. She's sitting in a hotel room waiting for the house to be ready. Uh, she texts me asking, saying, like, ever since she had a kid, the very content of Pet Cemetery upsets her more, to which I respond, you should definitely go see the movie and write about how it's changed you, how being a parent has changed Pet Cemetery for you. And... Uh, 
because she's in a hotel room, because she's in an unfamiliar city in the middle of the Pacific. She goes to a 9 a.m. screening with her baby, just hoping, hoping the baby won't annoy anybody. Wait, wait, wait a guilty. second. So ba- it's Chris's <laughs> fault that she went to the movie with a baby is what you're saying. Oh, oh, I'm saying she, she went to the movie with her baby. Baby slept through the whole thing. She was so excited that she came out of the movie saying, like, yeah, I, I saw Pet Cemetery with my baby. I went early enough that it didn't bother anybody. Baby didn't sleep at all. She opens up Twitter, sees your tweets, and was so dispirited and disappointed <laughs> in herself. Listen, I don't know this person, but she's a monster for doing this. No, I'm kidding. Um, look, I, like I said, I get it. And they're, they're in some cities, like New York actually has these things where they're literally – screenings for adults to just bring their kids to because they have no other choice and i think you know, draft house has those too right and Check if you out. have to do that do that but like come on like this is or at the very least like if you go to a movie and your baby starts shrieking that's that's your sign that all right this isn't gonna work and we're gonna have to leave like i get it if you go and the baby miraculously stays quiet then you know everything worked out but if you're you sit down and the minute you sit down the baby is wailing like you know they've been burnt with hot oil it's it's time to get up and leave you, you know la actually has a few places like the arc Lake will sometimes have like some screenings that are 21 plus um which i think is the the opposite of i, I mean the baby screening so basically you are, are ensuring that there are no jackasses under the age of you know 20 in that, in that. Guys, do you guys have theaters that have um a a, like a, a separate room for parents with kids? No, I don't. So there are some theaters in uh, Utah where my girlfriend lives where they have a side room that has dim lights in it that, that where the sound still goes in, into there if the parents still want to try to watch the movie, but they have kids that are crying that w- 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 might disturb other people, and it's soundproof. So they can go into this room if they want to so that the movie is still in there and they're not missing anything, but their kids also aren't annoying anybody. See, that's a good idea. If theaters had that, I would not complain, and I would also never go near that room. But that's interesting. Um, the, the, the church I went to as a child had one of those rooms. Yeah, mine like, too. I was about to say, yeah. That's crazy. I've never heard of that before. I wonder if that's just a Midwest thing. I don't know. Um, write us in if 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 that's a thing that is happening nationwide. I've never seen that before. Uh, but we we must move on. Let's talk about the legend of Cocaine Island. Is is this the thing that I keep on seeing on Netflix? Uh, yeah, it's a Netflix documentary uh, directed by Theo Love, and it is very it's very very much a Coen Brothers esque story, except one that's real about a down on his luck uh, Floridian man who learns from a local hippie about a bag of uh, cocaine buried in Puerto Rico uh, years and years ago. So he sets out with uh, some fellow criminals who are also none too smart to find and dig up the bag of cocaine and uh, turn their fortunes around. And it's it's one of those movies where 20 minutes into it, I realized, oh, this is based on an article that I read years ago. And it was was still still good because this movie goes beyond where the article ended. And it's very fun and very funny. And the characters are just incredibly outrageous and... Uh, Love makes an interesting choice where he, he films a lot of reenactments, but he uses a lot of the real people in the reenactments. So the actual people involved in the situation are themselves acting them out again in these very cinematic ways. And it ends up feeling very strange. And he often films the reenactments in ways where 
it's shot like a serious crime movie, but the characters, you know, look like, you know, Florida moms and dads. So it, it, at times it doesn't quite work. So there are times where I feel like the movie is maybe mocking them a little too much, maybe being a little too cruel, especially in the final third where it really starts um, digging into these people and what happened to them and how they really got screwed over in, in ways that you won't see coming and uh, ways that actually deserve a very serious conversation. And when the movie's ready to have that, it's already spent an hour kind of making fun of them and how bumbling they are. But I think overall it's incredibly entertaining and incredibly for, for anybody who, who, who remembers, uh, you know, how rough the economy was a decade ago and just how so many people spiraled, how, and if you ever personally said, man, I would do whatever it takes to get out of debt. If you ever had those feelings or remember those times, this movie will strike a nerve and hopefully make you laugh at the same time. Chris, what do you think about this? Uh, yeah, everything you just said is, is, is on the money. This is a very, um, amusing, very entertaining documentary. Um, my wife and I were on this kick now where we pretty much only watch true crime stuff. Like, because for some reason, when I try to watch any movie with my wife, she'll fall asleep, but she stays awake for true crime stuff. So uh, we saw this was on Netflix. We were like, all right, let's, let's give it a go. And, you know, while it is technically true crime, it's a, it's like a, a true crime comedy, which they don't really make a lot of them. You know, usually true crime movies are about, you know, people being murdered. And this is, it's very funny in, in its scenario. And uh, it's like, it gets into like breaking bad territory at times because the, the guy hires, not hires, but he's friends with this guy who's pretty much like the real life Jesse Pinkman from, from breaking Bay. He's just this like complete stoner weirdo. And he, he's just always has sunglasses on. It's just a very funny, strange movie. And I, I really liked it. It, 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 it surprised me because I wasn't really expecting anything from it, but it, it ended up being one of the most entertaining things I've seen in a while. One of my favorite things, Chris, is how his stoner friend in all of his talking head interviews can barely sit still and keeps on direct, talking directly to the, to the director, not the camera. So keeps on saying, Theo, Theo this, Theo that. Because he can't follow the rules of talking head interviews. Yeah, it's great. It, it's that guy, like, I, I almost want, like, this to be like a, a a series where they keep focusing on these these two guys, the, the, the main guy and his buddy, just because they, they just seem like such wacky characters and i'm sure they have more stories probably not as outrageous as this but i, I just picture them getting into more bumbling situations and i want to know about them okay i think both of you have sold me on this i'm going to add this to my watch list uh finally after seeing that tile on my netflix uh all this time okay let's move on to the twilight zone something i was contemplating watching this weekend but i wasn't ready to to uh you know like ben I am reluctant to add another subscription service to my growing, you know, all the money I'm spending on all these subscription services. But uh, Jacob and HT, you both watched The Twilight Zone? Yes. What did, uh, what... HT, you watched the first episode. What did you think? So I watched the first episode because it's um, the entire thing is available on YouTube. And um, I don't have quite a strong connection to the Twilight Zone as a lot of people have. I've seen a few episodes here and now, but um, I haven't watched them all the way through. I've enjoyed every episode of the original Twilight Zone that I've seen, though. Um, and seeing the new Twilight Zone was interesting because it is an hour long as opposed to the sort of half hour um, episodes that they were before. And it kind of goes deeper into these 
uh, sort of cautionary tales slash fables uh, in a way that feels, um, what's the word? I guess almost more heightened in a way um, and more grounded. Uh, Kumail Nanjiani is excellent in the pilot. And um, I did like the, I liked the premise a lot, uh, especially how it kind of stood for the parasitic nature of like comedy and art. Um, but I, I will say that um, uh, Tracy, oh, What's his last name? Tracy Morgan? Yeah. Yes. Tracy Morgan almost took me out of it for a little bit because I'm so used to seeing him uh, in 30 Rock. So I was like, I wasn't used to seeing him in sort of this more sinister role. But uh, I really enjoyed this pilot episode and I will watch more um, potentially. Again, I'm also kind of on the fence about subscribing to more, but I did like seeing the pilot as, I, as it was. And it is tempting and it was good enough to tempt me to uh, potentially get a CBS All Access subscription. Yeah, I think. Oh, sorry, Peter. I was going to say, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think of this, Jacob, because I know I, I looked at Metacritic, which I know is always a bad idea. But this, this show is getting like a 60 percent score in Metacritic, which isn't very good. And enter, I know Entertainment Weekly gave it like a two out of ten. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people were kind of disappointed. It seemed like uh, Jordan Peele didn't have his involvement was kind of uh, thin with the show. So I'm, I'm curious what your take is on this, Jacob. I think that's a bizarre reaction to a show that is good and to feel so much like the old show in its bones that I feel like maybe people who aren't familiar with the Twilight Zone are the ones reviewing this because the Twilight Zone always was sledgehammer fables. These stories of of humanity gone wrong uh, told with blunt force and Jordan Peele and whoever and the, and the showrunners and everyone else working on this show is really delivering that. And the first episode, the comedian, uh, as HT talked about, is not is not subtle. It, it is very clear in its theme, but, but so was the old Twilight Zone. Old Twilight Zone uh, wore its bleeding heart on its sleeve. It was always very clear what it wanted to say. And second episode, uh, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, which is a uh, really clever update on Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, the old episode starring William Shatner from the 60s and later starring uh, John Lithgow in the Night Flight Zone movie. Uh, that, As you may remember, that original episode, original uh, segment in the movie, was about a man who sees a monster on the wing of a plane and nobody believes him. And this one uh, stars Adam Scott as a man who finds an MP3 player uh, on the plane where he's taking off and flying across the ocean. And on the MP3 player is a true crime podcast about a plane that disappeared and it's about the plane he's on. So he's listening in real time to the episode uh, trying to uh, describe what went wrong on the plane as he tries to keep the plane from vanishing or, or crashing or, or whatever happens to at the end of the episode. Okay. And interestingly, this is not this is only a 36 minute long episode compared to the comedian, which is which is a full hour, and it has this really relentless pace. Uh, it is maybe not as clean and it's like thematic sledgehammer as the comedian is, uh, but it's really intense and really impressively made. I like the performances a lot. And I like, I like this show a great deal. I mean, I'm gonna stick around and see this all for at least a few more weeks um, to catch up on Star Trek and to watch more Twilight Zone. I mean, as somebody who grew up watching Twilight Zone marathons all the time and has that show like absorbed into my blood, this is what Twilight Zone has always felt like—just you know, reinvented for a more modern age. And I think calling it a bad show is deeply odd. I think it's too well made, too well acted, and too clever. And I think that's an overreaction to give it a two out of ten. That's that's just yeah. silly. And Hollywood Reporter gave it a one out of ten. Crazy. That's just 
Chris, Chris, you reviewed this. They're, they're crazy, right? <clears throat> yeah, this is. Um, I, I saw four episodes, and I will say the the last episode, which is called like the Traveler, is is really bad. It's a, it's it's probably the worst one of the. It is the worst of the four, and um, I hope nothing else is as bad as that one. But beyond that, I really liked. I mean, I do think some of the episodes have trouble sticking the landing like the adam scott one you were just talking about it's great up until like the final two minutes and then it's like it sort of loses sight of what it's trying to do but beyond that it's such a a well-made show the cast is great um uh, i I don't know what people are looking for uh maybe they just wanted you know something more old-fashioned like the original twilight zone was but beyond that it's a good show I, i don't i don't know what people are looking for okay uh, I think I'm going to plan to w- when this whole series is on CBS All Access to to subscribe then, so I can subscribe for the month and watch that in Star Trek. I think that's probably the best way of doing this. I don't want to wait week by week, anyways. So, okay, uh, let's move on to MCU. I know in anticipation of Avengers Endgame, a bunch of you are doing a rewatch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Jacob, I know you are probably doing the most extensive of our group. Yeah, um, I'll, I I know we're taking a lot of time already, so I'm just give you the the quick rundown of what I've done so far. I've I've only just started, but the first Iron Man still good, feels really small, but not always in a bad way. Incredible Hulk, it's really strange. It's aged interestingly. It's very, it's a black sheep Marvel family, but, but I kind of like that about it. Uh, Iron Man Two is my least favorite MCU movie. It is such a mess. I do not like almost anything about this except Sam Rockwell, who is wasted, uh, and Thor. Uh, very strange, like Iron Man, very small, and I don't think they figured out who Thor is yet. And Chris Hemsworth's blo- Chris Hemsworth's blonde eyebrows, which they let be the normal hair color later on, are deeply unsettling to look at. And, th- and that's where I am right now. Okay, and Brad, you are half-assing a rewatch. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm at the point where some of these Marvel movies have been out for so long, and I like them so much that I've rewatched them plenty of times, just you know, casually whenever I felt like it. So going back through and rewatching them all in order doesn't really do much for me because I still remember them all pretty well. And then the ones that I don't, I don't really particularly uh, care to, to revisit. Um, so like I, I own every title and I can go back to them whatever I want to. So I, I will watch some of the ones that I feel like it leading up to it. Probably some of the more recent ones just as, you know, kind of a more uh, recent refresher leading up to it just to ramp up the excitement. But Otherwise, yeah, it's just uh, it's a lot of movies to, to try and fit in before Endgame. And when I've seen a lot of them, I just don't feel the need to go out of my way to do that right now. Yeah, I, I just don't think I'm going to have the time to do that. So maybe I'll rewatch a couple of them, like Civil War and Infinity War, like the things that are like directly leading into this. Um, OK, let's uh, l- let's break it down to per- uh, by person now. Uh, I will talk about what I've been seeing. I saw the first six minutes of, or I, I didn't see the first six minutes. I saw six minutes of Avengers Endgame. I can't talk about that here, nor do you want me to spoil it for you, but it looks good. So there's that. I watched uh, the whole season of The Act on Hulu. I, I don't think the whole thing's out yet, but I, saw, I got some screeners. The Act is a show that I mentioned on our highly anticipated TV show episode. It didn't make our list, but this is a Hulu anthology series based on uh, real true crime stories. It's, uh, you know, narratively told. It's not a documentary. Uh, we, uh, this is, this season is based on the case that was profiled in the documentary Mommy Dead and Dearest. I have not seen that documentary. 
Uh, my girlfriend Kitra has, and, but she saw it like when it came out, what, two years ago or something like that. Um, and she still really enjoyed the series. I would recommend the series. It's um, It has kind of an unappealing title, like The Act. What is that? And I think that's just because they're going to do a new, you know, every year or every season the plan is to do a new case. Um, but uh, I feel like a lot of people aren't going to click on it because of the, the name. Um, it's weird that we're starting to see these adaptations of these true crime stories that have already been done in different mediums. Like we, you know, Dear John as a podcast is now a TV series. This going from a doc to a TV drama. Um, this is much better than the Dear John Bravo series. Uh, it has great performances from Joey King and Patricia Arquette who, in my mind, had the best performance of last year in Escape from Dannemora. Um, some really torturous to watch uh, scenes with this mother, what she does to her daughter. And I'm not going to kind of ruin the story. I think you should experience it yourself. Um, but uh, I, it's interesting. This show has a lot of like one-episode appearances from big people, like uh, Dean Norris from Breaking Bad appears in one episode as... Uh, Wolverine, like the character from Marvel Comics. Uh, uh, Rhea Seahorn from uh, from Better Call Saul appears in an episode. Uh, the Incredible Mar- Margot Martindale is in an ep- in a couple episodes. Juliette Lewis. Um, so there's a, a lot of like really crazy, um, great performances in the in the show. And uh, one episode, uh, not to ruin anything, but takes place almost entirely during a screening of Disney's live-action Cinderella movie. So so if, if that sounds like something you'd want to see, I, I would recommend checking out. I do think um, this show asks us to consider, you know, this complex but almost unbelievable story. Like, this, this like anything else, like, I feel like if it wasn't true, we wouldn't believe it happened or some of the stuff that happens happens. Uh, and I think the show's – it's interesting. Almost like Escape from – Escape at Denimora, it shows – us events out of order in a certain way to play with our emotions and ask us, you know, who is in the wrong? Is anyone in the right? Um, but I, I really like this and I would, I would recommend it to all of you if that is called the act and that's on Hulu. And the other big thing I saw this weekend is a documentary called the boy band con, the Lou Pearlman uh, documentary. Uh, this is on, YouTube Premium. I'm not sure if you can watch it just on normal YouTube or not, but I know it was produced by YouTube. It was produced by Lance Bass, who, um, you know, uh, Lou Pearlman is the guy who started the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Uh, He's basically the one that created the boy band craze. And on one hand, he is a genius for spotting and creating this trend. On the other hand, he... uh, it was kind of a creep and uh, basically a con man. And, uh, you know, there's even uh, accusations that he sexually abused some of these children that he tried to, you know, create into these boy bands. Uh, this doc is kind of like a talking head documentary, but it has some footage from these bands' archives. And it, it has a lot of the people that were involved. And it basically shows how he used his money to, like, elect a new governor in Florida to basically throw out an investigation into his highly suspicious talent agency. It's kind of crazy what happens in this. Um, He committed a Ponzi scheme, uh, having thousands of people invest 
nearly a half a billion dollars in his airline company, Trans- Transcontinental Airlines, an airline that had no actual planes and doesn't really exist. And uh, I-, I guess when we're talking about recently, we're talking about, you know, those Firefest documentaries. We're talking about the inventor. inventor and I think um, say what you will about the to- the people at the subject of those documentaries. But I feel like those people kind of had some well intentions like Billy McFarland. I, I think probably thought at one point that the fi- fire fest was going to be a good, cool festival. And I think, you know, the person at the subject of the inventor really thought that she was going to change the world. I, I don't think Lou Pearlman was a good person. And I think from day one, I think this documentary kind of paints a picture that he was kind of a con man from day one. And this is a, uh, this is a documentary I would I would highly uh, also highly recommend you see. Aaron Carter is the only one in this documentary that literally comes off as insane in defending Lou Pearlman. Um, but uh, I, I I really enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. And the last thing I wanted to mention is I saw a net a reality series on Netflix called Selling Sunset. I'm into these kind of like real estate reality shows there's some on bravo like million dollar listing that i like and uh they're kind of trashy and and whatnot but um so i thought i would give this one on netflix a try i came out this week and this one is kind of set in in my area in west hollywood on the sunset strip and it's about this real estate agency which is run by these two guys and uh all the real estate agents are uh model-like females and it's kind of like uh, i guess charlie's angels of real estate where they're you know assigning them stuff and they're going out and doing stuff and you know this new uh woman gets hired by the agency and is causing drama it's really bad i couldn't make it through one episode so i would say stay away from selling uh, sunset um but yeah that's what i've been watching this week Ben, I know you have been traveling with me and on the plane with me, and you haven't been watching too much, but you did get to watch some stuff before and after CinemaCon? Yes, yeah. So one of the things that I watched is the first season of the new Hulu show called Shrill, which stars A.D. Bryant as the lead character. And there's only six episodes of this first season, and each of them is only 30 minutes. So that's how I was able to watch this, even among all of the uh, or amid all of the CinemaCon craziness. Uh, the description of this show is that A.D. Bryant stars as Annie, a fat young woman who wants to change her life, but not her body. Annie is trying to start her career while juggling bad boyfriends, a sick parent and a perfectionist boss. And uh, the show's pretty funny. It's um, you know, it's it's written in part by A.D. Bryant, and it's based on a book by Lindy West, who you may recognize that name if you've been uh, on the internet for many years and paying attention to the writers of the articles that you read, because she's written for tons of places all over the internet and um, is like a very prominent voice online. Uh, and um, yeah, the, the show is pretty good. I mean, I, I think for me, I was surprised that. I was looking at this more as a, as a comedy going in, but I, I was surprised that the dramatic moments really worked for me too. Um, Julia Sweeney, another former uh, or another SNL veteran, obviously A.D. Bryant is currently still on Saturday Night Live, um, plays her mom and Daniel Stern plays her dad, who is a, who is the, the sick parent that that description talked about. And he especially like surprised me because, you know, Daniel Stern, he's like the guy for the goofy thief from Home Alone. He's like very uh, often a very loud sort of rambunctious type of character, but it's totally different in this show. Uh, you sort of get a, a different side of him. Um, A.D. Bryan is, is very good. And the weird thing about the show though, is that after six episodes, it just sort of cuts off and it seems like 
wait, this can't possibly be the last episode of the season, right? Because there there are some plot threads that are left wide open and just the way that it, it just does not seem like a season finale in any way. And I was looking into it and like trying to figure out, okay, did they announce that it's, you know, just the first six episodes are like the first half of a season or have they already given this thing a green light for season two? And the answer is no on both accounts. So I don't know if we're ever going to see any more from Shrill. And if that's the case, um, I mean, I guess I still recommend watching it just because it's such a breezy quick watch but uh are, are, are you one of those people that like if a show goes like six seasons uh i guess like lost and you're highly disappointed in the ending that it's not a show worth watching uh lost is a different example because i love lost and i love the characters yeah. and i love the ending so i would definitely recommend that to everybody but yes i think so i think for in, in today's you know there, there's so much to watch you know it's like if something doesn't fully land um or fully stick the landing it takes a lot it takes it takes really great performances a really tight direction or something that's that is very stylistically impressive for me to to be able to give it a recommendation across the board like that uh, if the story doesn't, if it sort of like just craps the bed at the end. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm <laughs> sort of torn about that. But uh, what I watched, I enjoyed. I just sort of couldn't believe that it came to an end that quickly. So uh, that's shrill. That's on Hulu right now. And then I watched Midnight Run for the first time last night. This is on, I watched it on the Showtime's uh, app. So I, I have that, but I don't know if maybe it's streaming elsewhere. If people want to check this out. But this is the 1988 movie directed by Martin Brest that stars Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin. And De Niro plays like a, uh, a bounty hunter who has to find Grodin, who has stolen a bunch of mob money and basically transport him from New York City to L.A. over the course of like five days or something. Um I know this movie had been referenced a ton by lots of filmmakers over the years. It's like one of those things that, you know, when people talk about inspirations for their movies, this is often up there and in the list and, and mentioned by a ton of modern filmmakers. So I knew this was like a, an informative sort of um, important movie for a lot of modern filmmakers. And I had never seen it. So I finally got a chance to check this out. This movie is really good, guys. I don't know if you've seen it, but to me, this is like um this should be, uh, you know, talked about in those terms. It's like this is peak De Niro for me, like or maybe maybe not peak De Niro, but ideal De Niro for me. You know, it's, he's got a little bit of that uh, that sort of um, I don't know what you would call it. Like uh, he has a good sense of humor, but also he's not like uh he's not lazy yet at that point in his career. You know, it seems like he's credible that he could be running around and pulling some of the, the stunts and stuff that he's supposed to be doing here. Um, Charles Grodin, who I know primarily from the Beethoven as the dad in the Beethoven movies was very good. Also a guy who's generally tends to play really wild characters, um, but is way more reserved in this movie, but their dynamic is really great. Um, and there's, this is like character actor, Central, They're like Dennis Farina, Joey Pants, Philip Baker Hall, Yafet Koto, John Ashton. I mean, the, the, like every small role is filled with somebody that you know from other movies. Um, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Has anybody else seen Midnight Run maybe recently? Uh, not recently, but I saw it uh, many years ago when I was young. But yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. And then um, finally, I watched a movie called The Bad and the Beautiful that was directed by Vincent Minnelli. Uh, this was a 1952 movie, and it stars Lana Turner, Kirk Douglas, Dick Powell, Gloria Graham, and Gilbert Rowland. This one, uh, this movie won five Oscars. 
um, for uh, Best Supporting Actress, Art Direction, Cinematography, Costume Design, and Best Writing, uh, the Adapted Screenplay Oscar. And it's about like a, a movie producer calls in a director, a star, and a screenwriter into his office and tries to convince them to work one more time with this uh, producer who basically screwed them over earlier in life. And each act of the movie is like a flashback from each person's point of view, uh, detailing how they met up with this guy and how their careers sort of were launched by his ambition and how he ultimately ended up sort of stabbing them in the back in, in various ways. Uh, it's like a sort of a, I don't know if it's a full on satire of Hollywood, but it, it is certainly a Hollywood story. And if you like movies about making movies, uh, this one's really good. It's called The Bad and the Beautiful. Okay, very cool. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? I watched Mercy Black. It's the new Blumhouse Universal movie that uh, arrived directly on Netflix and skipped theaters, which made me very concerned when I hit play. Uh, especially since it's directed by Owen Egerton, who is a local Austin filmmaker and personality. And full disclosure, I have met him. We're not friends by any means, but we, we've been the same. We we share the same social circle. And he's a very nice man. So if I didn't like this movie, I wouldn't be bringing it up. But I did like Mercy Black. I didn't. I enjoyed it. It is very heavily inspired by uh, the legend of uh, Slender Man, the online character, and more prominently the real life crimes that uh, people who are mentally ill have committed uh, after being quote unquote inspired by that those stories. It's about a woman who's released from. Uh, a hospital after spending 15 years after committing a crime as a child in the name of a fictional creation named Mercy Black and her attempt to uh, get back into society in, in a town that remembers all of her crimes and the question of whether or not Mercy Black is real it, it is actually a specter haunting her it it it, it goes places I was not expecting uh, it's well acted, it's well shot, it's clearly a low budget affair uh, but I'm also impressed by what it manages to accomplish on its small budget and impressed that um, considering uh, the previous two films by Onokin weren't this well shot, weren't, weren't as well acted, weren't as well produced. I just overall really enjoyed this. I, I think the ending goes to a place where I'm not, I'm not sure if I'd like it yet, but I feel like the dumped on Netflix thing may give it a, a bad air, but I think that overall it's really solid, you know, brisk 88 minute uh, horror film. Uh, Chris, I'm, I'm assuming you must have seen this, right? Uh, I did, and I don't want to be mean because you just said you know this person, but I really <laughs> did. I did not like it. I mean, it has a really good premise, um, and I liked some of the ideas. It just was too cheap feeling for me, and I get it. You know, it didn't have a, a, a large budget, and that's not the film's fault, but. I don't know. It just felt like a movie that used like three sets over and over again, and it just really didn't work for me. But that's me. It's not. It's not at any means. It's not like a terrible, unwatchable movie. Like Blumhouse has put things in theaters that are much worse than this. So if if you're looking for like a, a quick horror movie to throw on at home, it, it's definitely probably worth checking out at least once. And uh, speaking of quick, low bunch of horror films streaming on Netflix, uh, I watched Await Further Instructions, which actually feels like it could have been an episode of Twilight Zone at some point. It's uh, very low budget, one set, and at, at times it feels uh, very cheap, and at times it feels very exciting. I feel like it's just this blend of ideas that can't the director, uh, Johnny Kevorkian, can't quite bring to full fruition because he's working on such a small scale. But the basic gist is a family's a British family is gathered together 
for the holidays. Uh, there's a lot of tension. Uh, a lot of family members don't like each other, different viewpoints, different lifestyles. And they wake up on Christmas morning, and the entire house has been completely sealed in from the outside by giant metal plates. And on the television is a message, await further instructions. And they assume that something's gone wrong outside. There's a gov- something involving, you know, a terrorist attack, or and the government sealed them in. And uh, naturally, the TV starts feeding them more instructions, starts giving them more things to do, like, you know, make sure you clean yourself to avoid contamination, do this, do that. And eventually, the instructions start getting more specific and more horrifying. And the family starts devolving into, should we follow what the TV says or should we not? And if you kind of can guess where this is going, uh, you've, you've seen some horror movies before. Because it goes um, initially where you think it's going to go. There's uh, shades of compliance in there, if you've ever seen that movie. Uh, but it ends up going into a very hard, sharp left turn uh, into, like, full... Let's put it away. The, the closest comparison will be a very famous horror movie that I don't want to say because it would spoil where this movie goes. But for a low-budget uh, movie like this, it goes to some places that I found strange and admirable in their own way and definitely has that twilight zone quality of we're going to teach you a very important lesson about human nature while we do some genre stuff so default horror streaming question chris have you seen this one i have not i've heard about it but i have not actually seen this uh, i've seen hard movie chris hasn't oh, i'm very excited this is a good day. <laughs> um in the opposite direction, speaking of movie streaming, my wife and I watched a bunch of horror movies over the weekend on Netflix while drinking, and we made the poor decision to hit play on The Bye Bye Man. Uh, goodness, this was shot in 2015, released in 2017, directed by Stacey Title, and it's pretty much Mercy Black, but worse. Uh, urban legend killer brought to life by young people who whisper his name and um, spread him like a viral uh, entity. It's Doug Jones, the actor from The Shape of Water and many of Guillermo del Toro's movies. It can be completely wasted. Terrible visual effects, terrible acting, some of the worst jump scares I've seen in a while. It feels like a half hour has been chopped out of it to try to get a short running time because it doesn't make any sense. Nothing in this movie makes sense. But uh, if you're already half drunk, um, there are worse things to make fun of. Uh, all right, Chris, your opinion on the Bye Bye Man. Oh, it's bad. It's a bad movie. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a bad film. And like Jacob said, there's stuff that happens here that, that literally I couldn't figure out why it was happening. I was like, is the Bye Bye Man like making everyone in this movie act like, a, like they, they're not a real human being? Or is this just like a terribly made film? I can't tell. I don't know. It's bad. Uh, speaking of bad, um, when my at one point <laughs> my wife and I's drunk marathon, um, we were both had a lot of vodka in us and the remote was, was in the reach of me, but I couldn't stand up. So I grabbed the remote and hit plan Terminator Salvation. My wife started screaming <laughs> at me, but she was too drunk to stop me. So we watched Terminator Salvation. Yeah, that movie is real bad guys. I haven't seen it since theaters, but Mick G's uh, fourth entry in the Terminator franchise is Holy mackerel. Is that Mick G trying to make children of men using Terminator characters? but having no skill whatsoever, and it is just absolute garbage. Uh, like, at least Terminator Genesis is interesting in bad ways. Like, or sorry, uh, in, interesting in, in ways that I find, like, worth talking about. Like, Genesis is a movie that's bad, but I, I love talking about why it's bad. Where Summer Salvation is just one terrible decision after another. This bad casting, like, this, this ugly cinematography, just... <laughs> terrible cgi Arnold schwarzenegger and stream me on netflix if you want to remember why you hated it uh does anybody here like this one I, or can i 
I will say that I think the first half of this movie isn't terrible. I think it's fine. It's not a good Terminator movie, but I think it's totally in the second half of this movie that things fall completely apart. Okay, I can forgive that opinion, Peter. As okay. long as you agree it falls apart, because <laughs> I know there was maybe you remember this, Peter, but there were stories of the entire back half essentially being reshot completely, and you can you can tell. Yeah. Uh, well, the uh, ori- original ending that they had that I think Ain't It Cool News reported was so much a better ending. But... Oh, yeah. At least it was crazy. For those of you who don't know, the original ending of Terminator Salvation, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, was that John Connor dies, and the Sam Worthington character, who's a, who's a cyborg, has John Connor's skin put over his robot body so, so he can continue to pretend to be John Connor to keep the, res- to keep the resistance going? Yeah, because and, the, the world needs John Connor to you know lead, lead that fight. So in the future, if, if it would have been a success and with that original ending, it would have been Christian Bale playing Sam Worthington playing Christian Bale. Which is this is the dumbest, best thing? I kind of love how I kind of love how crazy that is. Uh, oh, good, and, good for you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, Netflix okay. added more Jeopardy, and uh, Jeopardy is the best, and I love it very much. How much and Jeopardy add, does it have? Because how many years of Jeopardy are there? There's like a uh, lot of episodes. There are decades, but they've added. Uh, they have five collections now. And each collection is about 10 to 13 episodes, usually collecting a tournament of some kind. Like they added a college tournament and a teen tournament. And the college tournament is pretty much regular Jeopardy. But the teen tournament is hilarious uh, and awful because um, whereas when adults start losing badly on Jeopardy, they can maintain their composure, whereas these kids can't. So like, there's kids who are like essentially crying at the podium because they're negative 3,000. And there are kids who like... Um, are incredibly shy and don't know how to be on television and it's like adorable and horrible and I love Teen Jeopardy. It's just the best worst thing but it's also four other collections if you want regular Jeopardy. Okay, let's move on to Brad. Brad, what have you been watching? Well, um, I've been watching some things. I got around to finishing uh, Queer Eye Season 3. I'm all done with the show now. Kind of bummed that I finished it because it's so fantastic and I wish that there were new episodes of it all the time. Uh, have you given your life a makeover after this, watching this show? There are actually some things that I've kind of like taken a little, like some pointers on and things like that. Like I, I, um, I, I happen to see some like just some like cool clothes and like shoes that were on there that I like. I was like, oh man, I want like a shirt like that or I want shoes like that. And recently, so like I, I went out and got some different like patterned uh, t-shirts that I think I think um, probably probably Tan would be proud of. I hope. Um, and then I got some new, some new shoes that I think were pretty cool. And my, my girlfriend also liked them. So yeah, I've been, I've been applying some things that I've noticed and learned from Queer Eye, um, and ch- changing things up a little bit. And there's some things that I would like to do as far as like home makeover or like organization wise, but those are like projects that'll probably take a little more time and money to get off the ground and stuff that I'd probably wait for until I was living in like a more proper place with my girlfriend, probably. Um, so yeah, but it's uh, such a great show. If you haven't watched any of Queer Eye, you should just go out of your way to see it. It's, it's so much fun and just, it's charming and touching and entertaining and hilarious. And yeah, it's just uh, such a great feel good show. Um, I also watched the documentary Whitney, uh, with my girlfriend. It's on Hulu. It's about, uh, Whitney Houston, as we all know, the, the extremely famous, uh, singer who unfortunately kind of got caught up, uh, in drugs and, a highly publicized, you know, seemingly dishonest relationship with Bobby Brown. And this documentary is really um, tragic. 
and sad because you really learn that Whitney Houston's family kind of sucked. Um, and oftentimes, like, people, they really didn't do things uh, for her that they should have. They didn't pay close enough attention. Or if they did, they didn't care because they had an easy, you know, well-paying job just being part of her entourage, basically, and not really doing much. Um, she had, you know, kind of a challenging upbringing and there's just there's all these really sad things that you learn about her life that led to her ultimate you know uh substance abuse problem and untimely death and all those things and it's it's a very uh well-made documentary too it's um the talking heads on it are come from all the people that were close to her in her family and bobby brown and record executives uh and that sort of thing and there's a lot of great archival footage lots of things i learned about whitney houston that i didn't uh know about so it's um, it's directed by Kevin McDonald too, so it shouldn't come as any surprise why, why it's a good documentary. But it's available on Hulu um, if you want want to check that out. Cool. And uh, what else have you been watching? I got around to watching Christopher Robin, which is available on Netflix. Um, I wish I had seen this movie so much sooner because I was I was so surprised with how good this movie was. Um, I thought it was so charming and just dryly funny. I I forgot how just funny Winnie the Pooh is as a character by being so kind of just like just observant in the most literal kind of way. Um, in, in a way I feel like Winnie the Pooh almost feels like a character that's kind of like um, Dustin Hoffman's character in Rain Man to me. Cause Winnie the Pooh feels like he could easily be on the spectrum. He kind of, he takes things literally. He's not really in tune with perceiving people's emotions or social cues. And, Honestly, the first half of Christopher Robin, actually, because Christopher Robin is this jerk who's obsessed with his job and isn't really treating Pooh very nicely, is kind of like a Winnie the Pooh version of Rain Man. Um, and so it's, but there's so many things that Winnie the Pooh said in here that I was just, that were so funny. And it has that signature feel of some of the things that he says are kind of um, unknowingly also wise, even though he doesn't mean them that way. And I, I thought all the voices for the characters were really well done. Uh, I liked the the tangible, you know, worn look of, of them as these, you know, living stuffed animals. And it was it was just really charming. I, I was surprised by how much I really liked this movie. I think you finally sold me on seeing Christopher Robin. So congrats. Uh, what Excuse else? Me, I was watch? raving about this movie when it came out, as did Chris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but Chris and I don't always agree. I, I'm more on your spectrum, I feel like, uh, okay, okay. HG. But yeah. Okay. I, I'm, I'm finally putting this in my letterbox. Uh my watch list so uh brad what, what else have you been watching uh and then just recently i watched stan and ollie the uh the story about laurel and hardy uh where they're played by uh john c Riley and um steve coogan and it's um it's pretty good it's not quite as good as i hoped it would be it's definitely a movie where the performances are the real uh star of the picture um it, it didn't follow the exact sort of i guess narrative structure that i had expected from it it, it does in part but the, the the conflict, I guess, as it were, didn't come in this movie at the point that I thought it did. Um, it kind of came a little bit later, and it, it almost the resolution almost comes. I feel like a little too quickly, uh, you know, without giving away anything that necessarily happens. Not that it's not a famous story or anything like that, but it's just better if you kind of watch it unfold yourself. Um, but for I, I loved John C. Riley and Steve Coogan uh, in this movie as as Laurel and Hardy. They're just they're great. The the makeup that they did on them is fantastic too, because uh, you kind of you know you forget that it's them, even though you can still obviously see that it's John C. Riley and Steve Coogan. But they're just 
really good in this role. And I love the recreations of you know certain classic uh, Laurel and Hardy movies and moments. Um, there's some really great uh, single take sequences in this movie, especially the opening shot of this movie. It's a it's an awesome uh, one take thing where they're walking around a studio lot and move from like their dressing room to a, a film set and they walk down you know, the big you know, street that's in between the various uh, warehouses where they, you know, have all the sets located and things like that. And it was uh, a very impressive way to open the movie. Um, and on top of that, uh, Shirley Henderson and Nina Arianda, who play Laurel and Hardy's wives, are, um, or switch that, Hardy and Laurel's wives, um, are also fantastic. They have their own sort of, like, side thing where, they're constantly bickering and taking catty swipes at each other. And it really made me want to see a movie about those characters because they were so great together. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty good movie. I didn't love it, but I, 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 I love the performances. It's, I think it's definitely worth checking out. Okay, cool. And finally, HT, what have you been watching? I saw and surprisingly enjoyed The Beach Bum. So this is a film directed by Harmony Corinne and starring Matthew McConaughey as the titular Beach Bum, uh, a.k.a. Moondog. And I actually have a confession. I haven't seen any Harmony Corinne movies. Um, I never – I kind of – stayed away from what I thought was his brand of like ugly nihilism. I didn't really think I would enjoy Uh, it. I suspect you will not enjoy those other films. Yeah, but The Beach Bum was almost a feel-good movie. Um, It has this really sunny, meandering um, element to it that is almost almost, uh, strays on like this chaotic neorealism. And then it also has elements that are just like incredibly raunchy and hilarious and uh, almost absurd comedy. Uh, And I enjoyed it a lot. I felt like it was seeing Matthew McConaughey in his natural element, um, engaging in all of this, this hedonism and booze and drugs. But it was, uh, it was almost optimistic in a way in that it kind of had this um, message about, anti-capitalism, anti-society lifestyles and how that is almost freeing. Uh, I I liked it. And I um, I will, I don't know if I will watch his other movies just because like, yeah, you said, Peter, his other movies are probably a lot more uh, grotesque than this. But um, I will say I I won't stray away from his movies um, from now on because I, I enjoyed The Beach Bubble a lot. I also saw Cold War, which is the uh, foreign language film uh, that was Oscar nominated, directed by Pavel Pawlikowski. Uh, it's a Polish film uh, set in the 1950s uh, in which uh, two people from these very differing economic backgrounds come together and have this tragic, doomed romance that spans decades. And it is this utterly gorgeous, achingly beautiful film that is... Uh, amazingly uh, lean. It's only 88 minutes long and it is able to stuff uh, this really dense story of longing and yearning within that span while um, in a black and white aesthetic, which seems at first to be incredibly stark, but it ends up being so sumptuous and lavish in a way. Uh, I I love this film. Uh, I can see why so many people uh, put it in their top 10 list of 2018. Uh, If it were not, I don't know, four months into 2019, I would probably do the same. This was just a 
gorgeous, gorgeous film and so well performed by the actors uh, Joanna Kulig and Thomas Cott. I highly recommend this. Uh, if you have Amazon Prime, it is now streaming there. Again, it is only an hour and a half long, and um, yet it is able to tell this decade-spanning story in that span while not really mincing anything at the same time. So uh, if you guys don't uh, don't shy away from that black and white aesthetic and the romance, but it's it's so well done and it's so beautiful. Yeah, I still want to see this. Uh, so what else? What else have you been watching? I also watched. Uh, the Burial of Cujo, which is a film on Netflix. It's directed by Blitz the Ambassador, who is a Ghana-born musician. This is his debut film. And this is a film that was uh, distributed by Ava DuVernay's Array uh, Studios, I think. Yes, Array Studios, Array Now. And um, this is also a really gorgeous film. It is um, tells the story of a young Ghanaian girl who uh, is born into like sort of these tragic circumstance circumstances and finds herself telling the story of uh, this conflict between two brothers um, and the guilt that kind of um, belies uh, that uh, plagues them both after one tragic accident when they were young. And it's told as a fable in a way. It's a beautiful magical realism story you can tell why I liked it so much um, and it's just stylistically really surreal and striking the colors are incredibly vibrant and gorgeous and there's just so much imagery that is really indelible and really sticks with you I recommend this as well um, if you like magical realism films uh, or even fables like Pan's Labyrinth for example this one has a lot of shades of Pan's Labyrinth in a way um, and uh, has that sort of sweet melancholy to it as well. Uh, I recommend this on Netflix. Um, it's a beautiful, it's an incredible uh, directorial debut by Blitz the Ambassador. Cool. And I also watched a film called Lady J, which is another foreign film. This is a French film, also on Netflix. Uh, this is a film that is a period piece about a woman who um, is a wealthy widow, widow and. Um, she finds herself spurned by uh, a sort of uh, a playboy of sorts who she decides to take revenge upon by concocting this grand scheme in which she uh, recruits this um, this mother-daughter pair who have found themselves fallen from grace from society and are working at a brothel and want to regain their status as in the aristocratic um, society. But um, while it sounds as like a stuffy period piece and the first half hour does kind of play very slowly and um, a little a little bit dull it really kicks into gear um, and once that scheme like starts off and um, becomes almost a really nasty kind of mean uh, uh, revenge romantic revenge tale it reminded me a lot of um the favorite in a lot of ways, not quite as uh, over the top, but the favorite Phantom Thread, it has that sort of mean streak that goes through it, but also uh, a good humor as well that um, plays really well and like a kind of feminist, a distorted feminism that runs through it that uh, is slightly Gone Girl-esque. Um, so I, this is one I recommend if you can get through that first half hour, it's a very good film. Um, and then I also saw, this is just me kind of listing off my latest pop culture imports column, but I've seen a lot of good things for that one lately. Uh, this is an anime called One Punch Man, 
which is uh, an anime series that went kind of viral a couple of years ago. And it looks a little silly. It looks kind of like a satire, and I wasn't really expecting much of it. But it is a little ridiculous and hilarious, and it almost does play off like a satire of superhero anime series. Um, it's about a man who is the strongest man in the world, and... Um, acts before as acts as a superhero just kind of for fun and he trained himself so hard that he went bald and can now and can now defeat enemies with a single punch but he finds that life has become dull and uninteresting because there's nothing challenging so he spends his time just kind of obsessing and fixating over really mundane adulthood things like what to eat for dinner whereas there's a sale going on at this grocery store and it surprisingly captures that ennui of adulthood really well um, more so than any of like the superhero stuff which takes place in like 10 minutes of an episode and then kind of it's over like that but him just kind of musing over the uh the um the redundancy of life is really fascinating and really funny. Uh, so One Punch Man, this is a series that is on Hulu. It's second series, the second season just dropped on Hulu as well. So um, I also saw, if you remember from the beginning of the episode, I went to see uh, The Missing Link, um, or just Missing Link at its New York premiere. And uh, this was a film that is just, I think, like a most technically impressive, visually gorgeous movie ever. It is just so grand in its scope. And having gone to visit its set in Portland, I was able to appreciate even more just like how much work and how much dedication went into every single shot of it. It's incredibly seamless, the animation is. It's, um, it seems like it could- it, it almost uh, looks like it's CG. It doesn't Yeah, look, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. It, in parts, it looks like it's done in CG. And they actually do do an interesting blend of CG and stop motion in this, especially for a lot of the water scenes. But when you look at scenes like of um, Missing Link, the character played by Zach Galifianakis, who is a Yeti who's trying to find, um, oh no, sorry, he's, he's Bigfoot trying to find the uh, the abominable snowman, like his his brother, his kin. Um, when you see shots of him and uh, his fur is like uh, waving in the wind, it's just it's astonishing to just to witness. It's so beautiful, um, and I it's not as slapsticky as I thought it would be because. Uh, compared to just um, the trailers that I've seen, which I enjoyed. Um, but I will say that I did not quite like love the story. I think it was because the characters I didn't quite connect to, except for Zach Galifianakis' character, the missing link. Uh, the other characters is um, an adventurer played by Hugh Jackman and uh, his ex slash fellow adventurer played by Zoe Saldana. And they're fun, but they feel a little bit caricature-esque in, in some senses. But um, Zach Galifianakis does a great job, actually, as this sort of uh, literal-minded um, Bigfoot Sasquatch uh, who just wants to find uh, his fellow kind. Um, and it's, again, it's just the most ambitious, the grandest like a film that we've ever seen. I recommend seeing it just because of how gorgeous and beautiful it is. Um, what else? Okay. Ah, lastly, I watched the series finale of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I have raved about this series before on the podcast, so I'll keep it short, but it was a bittersweet, uh, kind of perfect finale. I was, it kind of, it did go exactly how I expected it to be. It went with um, the answer of what Rebecca Bunch's true love was, which was not a romantic love. And I kind of hoped that they would end on some sort of romantic love in a way that it would just like upend our expectation expectations of where this series was going. But they did it in a way that was just so sweet and um, 
closed that the arc of the entire show really well. Um, and uh, they also did a live performance uh, that was uh, followed the c- series finale, and that was just so much fun as well. So um, if you guys haven't checked out Crazy Ass Girlfriend yet, Jacob, I'm specifically pointing at you because this is a show that I know, I know, I know that you will love because you love musicals. You... Um, you love comedy, you love subversion. This is all of those things. And uh, it's just like really smart, really funny humor uh, that tackles that, uh, the rom-com in a way that you really haven't seen in a while. Okay, geez. Now that's over and it has a good ending, I will watch it, I promise. Yay! <laughs> okay, this is, uh, this is definitely a supersized episode. We haven't recorded in almost two weeks because of CinemaCon. So uh, let's get through these final two sections. I'll start off what we've been eating by, with, with a couple keto, you know, low-sugar recommendations. I found these uh, high-key snacks has these mini cookies. They're kind of like those uh, mini Chips Ahoy cookies that come in a bag. I'll link them. You can find them on Amazon. Uh, they are a little bit expensive, but they uh, are very low carb and uh, good for you. A lot better alternative to, to like normal cookies. Um, and last night we did some cooking. We did some recipes out of this book that we got that's called Southern Keto. I'll link that book in the show notes as well. We made a cheeseburger mac helper, which is basically like a, uh, I guess like a hamburger helper mac and cheese, but with cauliflower. And it was very good. I Highly recommend it. And we also made the drop biscuits. Um, they have these biscuits that basically taste like uh, those like cheddar biscuits that you get at, um, uh, you know, the, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's the keto version of those. And I'm not going to say it's as good as those, but but Jacob, these are amazing. You need to try them. Um, what, what have you been eating? Uh, nothing new in terms of special surprises, you know, just sticking on the diet, low sugar, low carb, high protein. Um, and I've been drinking less since I've been on dieting. Uh, but I'd say about maybe once every two weeks or so, I will have a, uh, drinking night. And I just want to briefly plug my drink of choice, uh, which is a deep Eddie Ruby red vodka. They're from a, uh, local distillery and, uh, they were actually the first uh, liquor company to make like flavored vodkas like this using natural flavors like a ruby red. They also have a lemon. They have a peach. Uh, they have an orange. They have a cranberry. And they, a lot of people have have um, you know made their own brands. I think Deep Eddie still tastes the best. And I think Deep Eddie Ruby Red Vodka with a Sprite Zero is a zero-carb, zero-sugar drink that tastes like it's an actual proper cocktail. And I highly recommend it for those of you who want to, you know, uh, eat and drink right, uh, but want something very tasty. So that's my recommendation. Yeah. So, Brad, tell us about all the sugary goodness that you've been consuming. <laughs> um, so there's recently there has been an influx of new M&M's flavors, um, three of them are part of their latest like thing where people can vote which one they want to stick around uh, as a regular flavor. They, they did that not too long ago, and the, the, the crispy mint one is the one that ended up being chosen to stick around as a permanent flavor. And so now they're doing it with three new ones. They have uh, English toffee, Thai coconut, and Mexican jalapeno. And uh, a friend of mine actually found them for me and uh, at a Walgreens and gave them to me. And I tried all three of them, and I have to say I think the coconut one's probably the most satisfying one. 
simply because it tastes um, kind of like an, an Almond Joy inside of uh, an M&M. And it should be noted that these are all peanut M&M flavors, too. Um, so I think that one was, was the best one. I'm not necessarily like a big lover of almond joy, but I do like the taste of coconut with chocolate. Um, uh, and this works, has a pretty good mix of both cause it's just a, the small crunchy bite sized peanut M&M style. Uh, the English toffee one is also pretty good. The toffee isn't as strong as something like a Heath bar. Um, and it's, it's a little bit overpowered by the, the regular peanut M&M chocolate flavor, but it, there's still, there's still the hint of English toffee that's pretty good. And then the Mexican jalapeno one, not really my jam, only because I'm uh, not really into spicy foods. I'm, I'm kind of a terrible half Mexican guy, and I don't really like spicy things too much. And this, um, the the mix of chocolate and spice has always kind of perplexed me. And there's there's been like an influx of recent sweets with uh, a, like a spice to them that I don't understand. Um, and this, yeah, it's the the jalapeno flavor isn't strong, but it it, it gets stronger as the taste it kind of takes over your mouth. So it, it's not spicy in an overwhelming way, um, but it's definitely there. It's kind of a mild heat, I guess, but definitely not my thing. And then just recently they came out with a new, uh, I think it's just a limited time flavor, that's hazelnut spread, which is basically Nutella inside of M&M's, which is very, very good. Um, a, a great addition. I hope that it becomes permanent because it's, it's a good flavor. And then I finally found the regular um, Starburst Duos, which I talked about Star Wars duos having like a jelly bean uh, collection, like collection in, in a bag for Easter, and it has a bunch of different flavors in it. And I, but I hadn't been able to find the regular um, cube Starburst uh, duo flavors, and I got them. And I was kind of disappointed to see that there's actually only two flavors in there. Um, technically, it's four, but because the duos are two flavors in one Starburst piece, it's uh, blue raspberry and lemonade um, and and watermelon and lime and they're they're both um pretty good like the, the mix of flavors is good especially i was surprised by the blue raspberry lemonade one because i don't really like blue raspberries a flavor too much uh but they're pretty good um even though the duo's jelly beans are infinitely better it's too bad they don't have the crossover mix between those as well what do you mean that that it's just those two flavor flavors mixed together that they don't mix like blue raspberry with one of the flavors from you know the other oh right right yeah, right yeah. yeah 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 for sure okay uh let's move on to what we've been playing jacob uh what have you been playing this week i've been playing two games on nintendo switch both of them uh small indie games they're each about 15 bucks a piece and the first one is baba is you which is a very intriguing puzzle game it's very hard to explain in the audio podcast so i'll try to be as succinct as possible you are a little sheep named baba and when you first start the first level there is text in the corners of the screen. One says Baba is you, meaning that you are Baba and you can move around. One says uh, rock is uh, push, meaning you can push rocks to get around. One says wall is stop, so if you hit a wall, you can't move. And one says flag is win, so if you get to the flag, you win. Uh, and it's very, very simple. You can literally just push rocks out of your way, get to the flag, and you win the first level. But what you quickly realized in future levels is that the text on the screen is also movable. So if you move, uh, if you, where it says flag is win, if you literally go and push the win under um, rock, then if you get to a rock, you win. Or if you push is you under Baba to wall, you become the wall and can move the wall. So you, it, it comes to an incredibly mind-bending game where you are building sentences out of what's available 
so you can manipulate a level in ways to navigate it and achieve your own victory. And there are many ways to win each level because you can, you know, rearrange sentences in different ways to move different things, make different things uh, barriers, and they're adding like enemies that can hurt you by walking into you later in the game. And it just every every single puzzle feels impossible until you solve it, and then you feel like the, the smartest person in the world. It is incredibly fun. It's a great playing game. That sounds great... so clever. Like I wonder, like how you even game test that i don't know i i know video game critics i follow are like really kind of blown away by it because like how how you come up with this i mean it, I, i've never played a puzzle game like it before it is so much fun uh i'll split ape out uh which is a much very different game uh you were literally playing a giant ape who to game every level breaks out of captivity by the people holding him and you rampage through a building uh killing everybody and they're all trying to kill you with guns and it's this very simple sort of two color uh style uh, very abstract animation, uh, very violent. Whenever you hit, hit an enemy, they splatter into blood and guts. But the real appeal here is that it has this, uh, the soundtrack is entirely jazz drums, and it reacts to how you play. So if you are like sort of quite slinking around, the drums get like softer and more intense. If you start slaughtering guards, it starts getting really loud and fast. Lots of like banging on cymbals, and the gameplay itself is very fun. It has tons of style. It's not very complex, but as a visual and audio experience, it is just like kind of really, really fun. You got to play with headphones if you play it on the Switch. And I just had a great time uh, just like soaking in the atmosphere of jazz drums plus eight violence. Uh, it's very fun. Very cool. HT, what have you been playing? Sorry to make this episode even longer, but I'm going to rave about Kingdom Hearts 3 for a little bit. Um, I finished the actually finished playing Kingdom Hearts 3 about two weeks ago, but uh, this game is so special to me that I wanted to talk about it a little. Um, and I am kind of in a funk after finishing it. I'm a little sad that it's over, and it's because it fi- it was over so quickly, despite it taking me so long to play this. It, this is an absurdly short game, almost like it didn't feel like a full game in a way, especially not in the way that Kingdom Hearts 2 did. Um, but I... I will say that I didn't I didn't appreciate how short it was. I wish that it was longer or that it had a more cohesive full storyline. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 did feel like it was kind of just wrapping up the the saga, the Xehanort saga, for those who follow the Kingdom Hearts lore. No one here does. No one knows what I'm talking about. But it just felt like a wrapping up of a saga and with in which all the plot happens in like the last third of the game. And the majority of you jumping around the Disney worlds doesn't really apply to the overall plot, which was a little disappointing. I, th- I wish that there was some um, greater connection between those two. I actually have a a theory for how they could have done that, but that's for another time slash podcast slash Twitter thread. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) I I did love this game, though. The gameplay was fantastic, even though it made the game absurdly easy. Um, And it was a lot of fun to play and just kind of revisit that time in my childhood in which I really enjoyed this series. And I still really do love these characters and this story, despite it being as convoluted as it is. I think the characters are what really drive that story and bring it along and make me invested. Um, And even though this is the end of an arc and it's potentially leading into a greater uh, arc that stretches back to the dawn of time, um, I am interested to see where it goes next. I'm sure it'll be another 20 years until we see Kingdom Hearts 4, but 
I still um, really appreciate this game despite some of its shortcomings. Um, I do want to give a shout out to at one point um, during this game, which I really enjoyed, was there is a part where you call on the Keyblade Masters of the, of the past as uh, as part of your power, and they actually do do this to tie in the Kingdom Hearts mobile game that they released, I think, like two or three years ago, and um, in like this one move you do, it actually like shows all of these. Uh, user IDs of all of these uh, Kingdom Hearts mobile game users. And that was a really cool, really sweet way of just making the fans part of the game. And I do feel like that's the big appeal of Kingdom Hearts is that it we feel, it feels like the fans are part of the game and that we're very connected to it. So I just want to say that I love Kingdom Hearts 3 and I'm, I'm sad that it's over and that I finished it so very quickly despite it taking me quite a while. Um, I am now currently just watching a bunch of Let's Plays and walkthroughs on YouTube because I can't let go of it. Um, I might try to play the other games. I did buy the three-game package on the PS4, so I'm going to see if at one point I can replay the, uh, the past games. Well, I'm sad after nearly two hours, this podcast is over. I want to thank everybody out there for listening to us uh, ramble about what we've been up to. Uh, you can check out both of the Shazam articles that we mentioned, the interview, and also Jacob's, uh, I guess, unpopular opinion piece. Uh, it's, it's a soapbox piece. Soapbox piece. Uh, we'll link that in the show notes. You can find more of all of us at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on any of your popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And send, uh, go on over to our iTunes page. Write us a five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And I promise we will return to our news schedule tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. <laughs> yes, Jacob. Did you think your time away would make me forget about the book? Uh, I mean, I was trying to, to forget about the book, but. The Gargantuan Book of Incense and Affrontery by Safian. What, what, uh, cha- what chapter are we doing today? I've opened it up to the liars section. All right, uh, Peter, you're a man of proven liabilities. Huh. That's not even an insult. That's just a bad pun. Yeah. Well, HT, you're a second story woman. No one ever believes your first story. Ah. <laughs> I like that one. And and Ben at college, he majored in alibiology. Mm. <laughs> Ben's Chris, not impressed. No. Well, Chris, well, he he not only kisses and tells, he kisses and exaggerates. Oh, no. Someone needs to tell his wife. Uh, Brad, he's such an exaggerator, he can't even tell the truth without lying. I mean, yeah. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure that one out. (sighs) (laughs) The heavy sighs are the best part of this segment.